Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What is going on in the market? It feels like we're going back to January. The VIX has a 10 handle. The S&P 500 is just points away from a record high. To discuss, joining us here in New York is David Kotok, Cumberland Advisors Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder. Good morning to you, David. Good morning, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Are we back at January? Well, it certainly looks like it. You just described it. But remember, February follows January, and we'll see what this next two months so is going to bring. In January, February, we explored the concept with people like yourself as to whether we were going to go into a new trading regime, a new market regime of higher volatility, lower returns. Is that where we're at? And if we are, why are we going back to a 10 on the VIX at a record high on the S&P 500? Well, I remember that discussion here, along with a bunch of other folks you had during that period of time and felt the same way. One thing is different now. Trade is now war, not even threatened rhetoric. Number two, all the promises that Peter Navarro made, there will be no retaliation, there'll be no penalties, everybody's going to have a negotiation, I think that was March, are proven wrong. And every single day we get another anecdote of the effects of trade war and how bad this can be. Ken Langone did an interview here Yesterday, I, yeah, and he's right. He's what did, got what did it. Ken say? Well, he, I mean, he's, trade war is a, it, we're headed for trouble. All the warnings of history say so, and we now have an administration which is entrenched in this policy and doesn't have a way out. It's trying to do a bilateral deal with Mexico. Then it's going to try to co-opt in Canada. When it comes to China, I think. This adversary is patient, doesn't have our political issues, has studied us exceptionally well, and is advancing faster than we are. I I read about how the rollout of 5G in China is light years ahead of the United States. And you say to yourself, if China's going to have this massive bandwidth and rollout, and we're going to be busy imposing tariffs and getting retaliatory tariffs on soybeans and lobsters. What is the matter with us? Okay. Good morning. I had to find the red button, folks. I'm new. Good morning, David. Um, If that's true, what do I do with my investments? I mean, you had Ohio last night where the suburban vote radically changed from the GOP traditional Ohio vote. You've got all the yanks with China that you and John have just voiced. Does it change Cumberland Advisors' investment approach. Well, it has. And in that, in the U.S. portfolios, with the ETF portfolios, we are now focused domestically. We are focused on small and mid caps. We are staying away from international exposure, which is at risk to trade war. And we have a cash reserve. And in, in the bond side, the <clears throat> treasury curve right. is being flattened and suppressed by a tax effect, mm-hmm. which expires on the 15th of September. Let's see what the yield curve looks like in October are, are you gonna November. Ma- are you going to make – you're like halfway through the year, we're in the dog days of August. Are you going to make your goal this year of fishing 282 days? 
That's your record last 282 year? 282 is kind of tough. I, get, tough. I get a little tired in my arm. So you yeah. moved to Florida to do that. I, I get the idea. What you saw in Ohio last night, is that going to happen in Florida? Are you going to have the suburban voters of Florida walk away from the GOP I and think, Mr. Trump? I, I think that's an interesting question. The congressman in my district, where I live in Sarasota, mm. is Vern Buchanan. I think he's seven or eight-term Republican. He's running ads walking down the street, holding hands with his granddaughter. He doesn't mention Trump. He doesn't mention Republicans. He is now worried. He's right. got a reason to be worried. So then how does that affect your—I mean, Farrell wants to know this. Farrell, you don't understand. John Farrell's sleeping under a park bench in Central Park if Sterling goes to 126. I mean, he's wiped out. <laughs> well, Euro, so, Euro Sterling's already made the move. Yeah. In North yeah. 90 Pence you know, I know that's so much for Francine's summer place in Italy. But but. What I want to know is, does all this mumbo-jumbo that John and I talk about every day on politics, does it affect what we do in investment? I, I think it raises risk profiles. I don't care where the VIX goes. It's a contemporaneous indicator. It has no forecast power. Everybody Does yield? Well, if there's no distortion in a treasury curve, you would look at the flatness of the curve. And you would mm -hmm. say there's a message here. But we now find in this tax code change that the purchases of strips are consuming a great deal of the monthly auction of the 30-year bond. And it's because of a tax code change which will expire on September 15th. Anybody who's any corporation who's got a defined benefit pension plan that's underfunded yeah. has huge incentives right now today. To buy long strips. They get paid for doing so in a big way. Do you know what I thought got lost in all the Tesla noise yesterday, Tom, was PIMCO and Dan Iverson, possibly one of the most talented portfolio managers on the planet, turning cautious and defensive. This is with the PIMCO income that. fund. Yeah, 113. I was in the surveillance nap. Dan is a fantastic PM with a huge track record over the last yeah, few years. Yeah. And he has taken the funds for a more defensive, cautious stance. And, and he says the following. Um, the populist parties have already gained traction across the globe. The major central banks are trying to step away from accommodation. They've provided for the markets for many years. Their influence is being quickly replaced by that of politics. Um, his view, the fund's view, for both equity and fixed income investors, we think this means lower returns and, unfortunately, high volatility. Now, that might not be the story of the morning, but that's the story they're anticipating. And you know fixed income really, really well, David. So right now, the way that PIMCO would describe it is that you can quite simply expose yourself to two pools of assets. A pool of assets, leverage to economic growth here in the United States, mortgage-backed securities, corporate credit, then a pool of assets that give you a hedge in case we get a downturn. Highly liquid, treasuries, things like treasury bills, et cetera, et cetera. How do you want to balance yourself between those two pools of assets through you, the duration of this year? You just described the classic bond manager's barbell. That's what we call it, as opposed to a ladder. If you're in a ladder today, you are taking on risk. You think you're reducing risk with a ladder, yeah. and you're failing. You're taking on risk with a ladder. You need a barbell. Now, how do you do the barbell? Piece long, piece short. And in between, you measure the duration of the hole, you measure the yield curve for its sweet spot, and you match it. Only you match it with a barbell, not linearly or ladder. That is a lot of technical jargon on bonds, I liked it. But, it, but <clears throat> that's how you do it. What are we doing in the barbell? When this curve gets fat like this, 
You shorten yeah. and build one side of the barbell larger than the other. Lean's Lodge, how are the fish? You were uh, up there with a bunch of people fishing. Yeah, we had 50 folks. We had a great conversation, mm -hmm. divided views, of course. Do you see the shot of me and John Farrell? We went sturgeon fishing this weekend. Your sturgeon went right. viral. Did it go viral? Yes, and we and we decided <laughs> that the sturgeon is about the size of what we use for bait fish right. up at Lean's Lodge. The oh, closest, wow. you were at Lean's Lodge. We are over at Petrosian. Ice cold vodka. Are you going to invite caviar. Tom and I next year? Can we you come guys are permanently invited. You would be tenured John, if you came up. I don't, there, there's no UK equivalent. It is so far in the middle of nowhere. Did you go by private, like one of those planes with the the pontoon things on it? Yeah, float plane. You get to the lake you on land a float on a, plane. You want? You going to hold my hand if I do that? I will. I'll carry your bags. David Kotak, thank wow. you so much. Come on the back of the boat. It, Passed yeah. out with a bottle of vodka or something. Yeah. I'll be out there in the Grumman <laughs> canoe taking Dramamine. <laughs> David Kotak, Cumberland Advisors. Why don't you bring in our next guest? An idiosyncratic EM. Pablo Goldberg, BlackRock, Head of Emerging Market Debt. I'm sure, Pablo, you're going to tell me some of these issues are idiosyncratic, but Turkey, Argentina, Brazil, it's adding up, isn't it? Well, I think that we need to separate this. I think that there are idiosyncratic vulnerabilities to global factors, if you want to put it like that. I think Argentina and Turkey belong to the same camp. Brazil is a little bit of a different story. Um, what is the trigger to uh, Argentina and, and, and Turkey? The trigger is you know, tighter financial conditions globally. In that sense, it is not an idiosyncratic issue. What it is idiosyncratic is that these two countries have been, um, you know, in out of balance for, for some time, and now the market has uh, indicated that it's time for reckoning. And the difference is that Argentina has beaten the bullet, I mean, has gone to the IMF, has raised interest rates significantly, is letting the uh, economy do the adjustment, but Turkey is not, and that's why now the pressure is on Turkey. Still a wall of silence over the last 48 hours. Pablo, what are you expecting to see from the Turkish authorities just in terms of policy response? Well, I think that we're the, the Turkish authorities are working in three different camps, right? The, the first one is trying to, um, you know, they, can't, they go to they gone to Washington. They're trying to deal with this issue of the sanctions because that's quite important. Because for a country that has large external funding needs, anything that can affect, you know, the willingness of foreign lenders uh, to roll over that debt uh, will be a complication. And of course, the presence of sanctions uh, or potential sanctions are a deterrent uh, potentially to a cross-border lending. So that's one area of work that they are doing. The other, the other area of work is, are they going to, is the central bank going to be raising rates uh, yeah. to, uh, you know, get ahead of the curve? And, and, and there's where we are not right. seeing so much advance yet. Pablo, give us a clinic on any nation, in this case, Turkey, that has two debt. They have debt in Turkish lira and they have debt in U.S. dollar. Both are going up in yield, price down, yields dramatically higher, 21% on Turkish debt. What does that mean for Turkish finance and Turkish banks? Let me, let me do another cut. Uh, on top of the one you've done. You, you've done the cut by currency. Let me do a cut by borrower, right? There's sovereign debt, basically debt of the government, and there's debt of the corporate sector, being banks and, and, and just right. corporates, not financial corporates. Where Turkey is heavily indebted, it is in dollars, 
So that's one part of the quadrant. And the other part of the quadrant that is the uh, actually corporate sector, the one that is so indebted. It's not the government. It is the corporate sector. Um, and the banks are in between, right? The banks are the, the guys who are just bringing uh, dollars from abroad and lending to the guys uh, inside. Uh, so what we need to put an eye on is on the corporate sector and the rollovers. Now, if they fail to roll over and they have payment problems, that's going to eventually knock on the banks. And that's why the banks right. have been suffering. Do we see that with in whatever is the short-term paper market in Turkey is the, you know, the proverbial canary in the coal mine. Is it some form of Turkish LIBOR or bank commercial paper? Well, I mean, if you look at, at, at the uh, sort of short-term borrowing costs in Turkey, of course, they've gone up. Um, we've seen uh, sort of uh, cross-currency swaps going up. We have seen uh, spreads of uh, Turkish banks gone up. Uh, so uh, that pressure is being felt through the system. Um, the question is, uh, are we at a point where um, we might have some failures or not? And so far, I mean, if you look at the data, and now granted that the data has a couple of months lag, but even anecdotal evidence, still rollovers are going through. Uh, I think investors are worried, will they stop, right, or not? And, and that's probably where um, we have not daily information, and that's bringing everybody to be a little bit preemptive. So the other thing that I think many people are worried about are whether these technical issues just become real fundamental issues, Pablo. When you have short-term interest rates this high in countries like Argentina and essentially a response that will have to follow in a country like Turkey, essentially that's going to choke off growth, and that's going to choke off earnings. And then the whole thing just sort of ends up in this big loop that is very hard to get out of, Pablo. To what extent are we entering that kind of cycle? We you know, you're totally right. And, and this is an exercise of adjustment, right? And, and and the big question when you go into an exercise of adjustment is how to distribute the cost of the adjustment. And this is what we are seeing uh, debated in Turkey today. I mean, in the case of Argentina, it is clear that the fiscal side is doing its adjustment, but also the the, uh, the consumers are doing their adjustment on higher uh, utility tariffs, et cetera. Right. Um, in general, the corporate sector through lower growth. Uh, in, in Turkey, the question is, will the government fight back the necessary adjustment as they did in 2017? Remember, they did a massive push-up in credit in 2017. Turkey grew 7% when this economy was already heavily dollarly indebted and with a large yeah. account deficit. So are they going to try to defy gravity for longer, which actually stretches the quarter, which could eventually break or not? Or are they going to you know, buy the bullet and just go through right. some slower and right now and trying to distribute the adjustment? The banks are in generally solid and they will have good provisions to cover some of the not performing loans that are going to go up as the economy slows down, as you indicated. Right. Um, so but the issue is, are you going to do it or are you just going to fight back and you're going to make the situation worse? And I think that's where um, the market is still debating because we're not seeing the right reaction function by the government yet. What? How does contagion start? I mean, if we have all these events here, there, if you look back to Ecuador and Mexico two or three times, and we all remember 98, how does contagion happen? We all remember 98 very well, unfortunately. And uh, contagion, uh, contagion happened. The first thing about contagion is happened uh, when you expected it the least. So that's that's one of the problems with contagion, right? And uh, and, and and this happens when investors start to 
compare uh, different countries by sort of where the vulnerability lies. And, and, and then you guys start to separate the winners and losers. I think that we have had a little bit of contagion before in emerging markets, kind of when the dollar started to move yeah. higher in April and May, we started to see contagion. We saw some contagion from Argentina to other countries. If anything, you could say that Turkey, you know, uh, having in mind its own vulnerabilities, it is a little bit of the uh, effect of the contagion coming from Argentina. But we're not seeing contagion from Turkey to the rest at this point. Um, there's one you know, uh, line that is uh, weaving through some of right. these countries, that is the issue of sanctions, right? Today, if you look at the Russian ruble, is under pressure on uh, expectations of right, potential right. higher sanctions to Russia. So that is a new access that investors are dealing with, that all of a sudden, uh, from Washington, that could right. be something that will impair the liquidity of some of the well, markets, or will prevent some players right. to play in significant markets. So that is things that could bring contagion. Pablo Goldberg, thank you so much to BlackRock. Folks, this will be out on our podcast on Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, is, well, Pablo Goldberg, just brilliant there on uh, EM as well. And I want to rip up the script here and just spend a good amount of time getting a clinic from Dr. Weinberg on why we can't clear markets anymore. Carl Weinberg is legendary for his experience with many others, and I think of Bill Rhodes of Citigroup over the years, in saying to troubled countries, you know what, you made some mistakes, here's how you work it out. And you usually work it out, folks, by extending debt. Maybe there's a cram down where somebody takes a loss up front to make all benefit down the road. There's an interest rate workout and other creative adventures as well. Carl, what happened? Why can't we do this anymore? Well, um, we can. Uh, the politics of it have become increasingly difficult. And uh, a lot of countries, um, even countries that still remain committed to globalism, uh, within their own houses are not willing to commit domestic resources to international events. And I'm talking specifically about Europe here, where um, while the nations of Europe presumably are united in a union, where they presumably share common interests and common causes and think of themselves as Europeans rather than Germans, Dutch, or Italians, um, nonetheless, when countries like Italy, Greece, Portugal, Spain, Ireland get into financial difficulty, the politics are unfavorable to burden sharing. Is part of this that we've eliminated, for the most part, fixed currencies and that a disciplinarian was the reality of selected fixed currencies, which forced the politicians' hands? Well, I think that the, the reason Europe's not working isn't the fixed currencies. It's all the things to support fixed currencies that have not been implemented. The Europeans, to their credit, have been making big strides recently, all right, better late than never, on things like banking union, on deposit insurance across borders, on shared risks, on burden sharing, on shared responsibilities. But they still have a way to go on fiscal responsibilities which is what makes it possible for the United States to have a Massachusetts and New York and Arkansas and a West Virginia all within the same nation and the same banking system without having to worry about capital flows or a currency adjustment. Do you worry do you worry about I guess this new theology of politics trumping all no pun intended 
with the Pacific Rim or with idiosyncratic stories like Argentina and Turkey? I mean, they don't have the Europe excuse, do they? No, they don't. And uh, there we have, but the same basic thing is there, you know, the domestic um, uh, response to any crisis, you know, is to, um, you know, blame the foreigner for it, shut down on foreign transactions and, um, you know, try to uh, clamp down on the parts of the boat that are leaking, which is uh, in maybe a first instance a good thing. But when the credit flows are across borders, you have to look across the border for cooperation and for a solution. You can't close well, uh, the foreigner out. Well, said it it shows your experience the phrase cop cooperation and solution are we not solving some of these debt workouts because they're really not that big of a crisis don't tell that to the greeks <laughs> no and they certainly are very real to the countries that are involved and i think the most relevant example right now is italy and i think everything uh, that uh, we've experienced recently in europe uh, and as well in emerging markets, even though Italy is not an emerging market, comes to bear when we think about Italy. We have a crushing public sector debt. We have crushing private sector debt. We have cross-border cumulative balance of payments obligations, which are hidden in the ECB's uh, clearing system, the so-called Target 2. And we, then we have domestic politics, uh, where yeah. repudiation of relationships and obligations <clears throat> seems to be the populist factor that's winning the votes. So a government that comes in on that kind of vote can't do the right thing uh, because it undermines its yeah. political base. Well, how do you respond to the idea, and this moves on from debt workouts, how do you respond to the idea of an Asia that learned their lessons in 98 and they have a bigger piggy bank and all that? How do you respond to that? I mean, is that do you buy the story that well, they're steeled for crisis? Yeah, I mean, you have to respond to that story on seven different levels, right? First of all, crises have always occurred. They're never going to stop occurring. They're part of the human condition, all right, that things get hot, they overheat, and then somebody has to pay for it. So you're never going to eliminate crisis no matter how smart or sophisticated you are. But the real story that I think you allude to, which is the important one, which is that the growth in the world, the economic growth, the population in the world, the money in the world, the investment of the world, the future of the world has now pivoted toward Asia, yeah. and Asia is the new place where the action is for investors, both for its rewards and for its risks, because as we know, for a savvy investor, risks can breed opportunities. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning. Carl Weinberg with High Frequency Economics with a little more thoughtful, uh, time-constrained uh, idea from what we see in the, the heat and all that. Fox and Tom Keene, and now uh, really enjoy Gina Smilek with us with Bloomberg Economics and Bloomberg News, and she's written up a bang-up story about one of the major trends. And Gina, just to set this up for you, Willem Bowder turned to me one day, and he said, Tom, this is a secret. I'm, I'm, I, you can't say it publicly, but we have hired Catherine Mann. And I felt so wonderful to see Kathy Mann out of Brandeis, who went to OECD, with one of the giant books on trade, and one of the real theories of dysfunction, China and the U.S. to 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 lead the shop at Citigroup. Tell us what you learned about women as chief economists. So women are increasingly becoming private sector chief economists, which is a big deal because this has, for a long time, just been one of those 
ceilings that women have a lot have had a lot of trouble cracking. And so we're seeing Kathy Mann at Citigroup, Michaela Marcusen and so- at Sockgen, Ellen Zetner at Morgan Stanley. Ellen Zetner at Morgan yeah. Stanley. Yeah. yeah, just across the really across the the globe we're seeing yeah. these women get these great big jobs, Janet Henry at HSBC. And so one of the things that's really interesting is the the women who are getting elevated now they have these stellar resumes they just have amazing um, histories in economics and they're really helping to elevate women sort of uh, behind them as well they're sort of pulling women up the career ladder so I think that is a positive sign for sort yeah. of gender equity in this field. There sounds like there's a negative here too. There's like a but. There's a big but, and that is that there's a pipeline issue in economics. You know, I feel like, you know, it's great to say we should hire women, we should strive for gender equity, but the reality is that there aren't as many women going into this field. And if you just don't have the the folks with the qualifications, it's going to be hard to get near anything like equality. It's, it's not even a reasonable goal to ask banks or central banks to achieve at this point. You describe in your story a conversation that is had between headhunters and one particular uh, economist. I wonder if you could just describe that. So I absolutely loved this anecdote. So my my colleague Lucy Meekin in the UK talked to Janet Henry, and Janet was telling her that she often gets this call from headhunters, and they want to hire women, or they want to hire economists, and they say, you know, do you know anybody? Do you know anyone would be good? And she's like, well, I'm not interested, but here's a list. She'll give them a list, and then they'll say, but do you know any women? And she just finds this happening again and again. And I heard the same thing when I talked to Mary Daly, who is senior yeah. uh, vice president for research <clears throat> okay. at San Francisco Fed. Can we rip up the script? Miss Smilek, folks, is one of my former interns and wandered through the door brilliant. Tell us your experience, Gina, of just what you described about economists, which is Everybody's looking for bright women. You came out of what was the school? It was a small school in the South. <laughs> Chapel Hill. UNC oh, Chapel, Chapel Hill. Hill. Oh, excuse me. It's Chapel Hill, not UNC. Call it Chapel Hill. <laughs> Anyways, you came out. And how did you get, I mean, the, the rap here is women don't take micro. Women don't do econometrics. Baloney. Because you did it. So what was it like for you being in the trenches like Janet Henry getting as smart as you are? Yeah, you know, so I actually feel like my experience is really emblematic of what we hear yes. here. You know, so I came from a small town, working class family in Pennsylvania. And when I went to school, it never would have occurred to me to study economics. I didn't think that was a thing girls did. And so I studied journalism and I had a couple of really good professors who really pushed me to look into economics, to look into accounting. And then Tom Cantiliano, who runs the Bloomberg's internship who? program, Tom Cantiliano <laughs> really did a, a me a solid in forcing me to take accounting. Um, and I think those things, and, and then obviously Tom working with you when I was an intern, you sort of forced me to read a book For, every week okay. about economics. I, I would yell at her, just read a book. And, you know, like the, some of the great interns we've had. Pitt, and I heard, I heard the voice. Colby Smith yeah. would have been the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, I think that is consistent with what we heard in reporting this story, which is women sort of, you know, often don't think of this as a field that is open to them, but then mentors get them into it and sort of pull them up the ladder. And I think that that mm. is what we see happening now. I was going to say, maybe they're just smarter. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. But I, I do think there's this interesting sort of untapped aptitude for economics um, that women can bring to the table, but that maybe isn't introduced to them at early levels like high school or even early college. Yeah, yeah, but it does it have to do with the notion that 
and I've heard this, so I can't really, there's no documentation for it, but men really operate because they want to be right. They themselves want to be right. Whereas uh, women are more interested in finding the correct solution, and it's not about them. So that is a really interesting observation, only in the sense that it actually really squares with something one of the women I was talking to said for this story. So Tatyana Avalova at Columbia University runs the Undergraduate Women in Economics. And the whole point of this program is to encourage folks to study economics cool. from, from a younger age. And one thing she says is we see women going into micro, going into applied. And the reason is when you talk to them, they can see the outcomes right. immediately. Well, they like to see that effect. Yeah. Major shout out there to Susan A. The, the, the first woman to win the John Bates Clark Award, and we are honored at Bloomberg to do the first uh, interview with her. Then, can we shout out another woman in economics who? Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting many. We have to mention Julia Coronado of BMP Paribas. Yes. When she was named head of North American economics for BMP Paribas, that was a huge deal. Huge deal that the French bank uh, would do this. Gianna, this is the most important article of the day. Thank you. So, what are you reading right now? I was just telling you, I'm reading uh, Nisim Taleb's Fooled by Randomness again for one of my classes at NYU. Do we agree she needs to get a life? <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Gina Smilak, Bloomberg News on Bloomberg Economics. Tom Keen, do you know how you can go from growing up on a farm in Iowa to running Boeing? You, you need to go to Iowa State University. Yeah, that helps. And their crack aerospace program. You do. And, uh, you know, one of the ways we're going to learn all about this is with David Rubenstein. And the David Rubenstein peer-to-peer -peer preview, it's brought to you by Wells Fargo Technology Banking. Wells Fargo helps business leaders find their moments of truth a little outside perspective can create a lot of clarity. And here with his perspective is David Rubenstein. David, what was it like uh, interviewing the uh, chief executive of Boeing? Did he explain how he went from that farm to uh, to be the head of well, Boeing? He did grow up on a farm and milk the cows, as you would expect, in Iowa. And then he got an internship at Boeing um, one summer and then ultimately got a job there when he graduated from college. He's been at the company 33 years but he's only 53 years old. Uh, amazingly, he is able to increase the value of the company quite considerably in three years. The stock is up about 149% since he's been the CEO. But the amazing part is not only that he's done that, but he rides uh, about 150 miles a week on his bike, about two hours a day. He's relentless. And, uh, you know, when you interview him, you realize you might be a little overweight yourself because when you look at him, he is so thin. He's in great shape. But he says that riding a bike two hours a day clears his mind, and obviously it must work. So I'm beginning to think maybe I should try that. Well, it would, it, it maybe it would help everybody, you know, when they get on those Boeing aircraft because uh, the airlines have been cramming more and more seats into those fuselages. What does he say about the future of air travel? Are we going to have to spend so much time in the air? Well, only 20% of the people on the face of the earth have ever been on an airline. It's hard to believe because the people we know are flying all the time. But only 20% of the people on the face of the earth have ever been on an airplane. So he's got a big market. Um, his biggest challenge, I think, is that he's got a, a frenemy, you might say, in China. He sells a lot to China, 
but ultimately China probably will build its own uh, business in the aircraft area. Right now, it's been largely a duopoly for the last 25, 30 years or so, which is to say um, uh, Airbus in Europe and, and, and Boeing in the United States. In terms of major airlines, mm. aircraft, obviously they're, they're planes that are made, made by others for uh, smaller regional things or for um, uh, business jets. But those are the two dominant airlines, right. aircraft companies, and I suspect China will ultimately become a major one as well. David, this guy is maybe more qualified than anyone from the Midwest, the fabric of Iowa and Iowa State and on to University of Washington and Boeing, to explain to the President of the United States how his trade policy obviously affects defense and commercial Boeing, but frankly affects everything else as well. Did he discuss the President in our new tariff tax policy? Well, he has met with the President from time to time, and I think uh, he's been supportive of the President's tax proposal, and Boeing was a big uh, proponent of the tax cut. Obviously, uh, the tariffs are a different matter. He didn't say what he said specifically to the president on a particular tariff, but there's no doubt that he doesn't uh, think this is probably yeah. a great way to proceed. Um, but he's not a person who tries to seek a lot of public attention for his views. He does operate very much mm -hmm. uh, in the background in some respects. But he's a very uh, charming person. He's very um, focused on philanthropy. Boeing has dramatically increased its philanthropy under his leadership. But again, he's very, very much on top of the right. job. He worked his way up through the defense part of the business yeah. and now runs everything. What's his style? If Alan Mullally Aerospace out of Kansas, or Kansas State rather, what, uh, had a style, one Ford and all that, well, what's, I mean, what's the Millenberg style? If you told me he was running an uh, agribusiness company, I wouldn't be shocked because he does have a, uh, a farmer kind of mind mindset in the sense that he's, he's very modest, unassuming. Uh, not loud, uh, and, and just goes ahead and does what he thinks is right. And uh, soli uh, sol solitude is something that's important yeah. to him, I guess, because he rides a bike so much. Um, I just don't know how he can do it, yeah. but he obviously does. The stock has done extremely well, and the company's done extremely well. David, these are delicate matters, but on this historic day, we must ask you, first of all, about if you at Carlisle have any relationships with Tesla. We don't want to tr step on those. Right. But it's an absolutely original morning, David, in my career to see the headlines uh, come across. I, I uh, am familiar with it, but yeah. we do not have a relationship with the company. I okay. saw it. I think it would be an incredible uh, buyout at $70 billion or so. Uh, that would be the largest buyout uh, ever done, a pure buyout. But uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, but there has to be a relationship with a 20% owning principal, entrepreneur, if you will, and his board. How would you advise the board on a proper action given all the transactions across the David Rubenstein career? Right. Well, the board obviously has to retain um, an independent uh, set of advisors because if the CEO of a publicly traded company is leading a buyout, you have um, some potential conflicts. So you'd have to make certain that uh, there's no other offer that would come along from somebody other than the CEO. And if the CEO is going to lead it, uh, the board would have to make certain that everything is done fairly so that it's not to the advantage just of the CEO. David Rubenstein, uh, as someone that has an extensive uh, list of experience uh, with companies uh, going public, going private, and the operations of, of various companies, if one of your portfolio companies' uh, CEOs, who maybe had a fifth of a company, came out with a Twitter tweet about a potential 
uh, buyout at a specific price during market hours, what would be your first call? It would be unusual to think that that would happen. I haven't had that experience. Uh, Carlisle's had hundreds of companies we've owned, and we've never seen something like that. But, you know, uh, Mr. Uh, Musk is an unusual person. He's done some things that people didn't think could be done before, including creating Tesla from nothing. And uh, Right, but what would you do? Well, I would handle it in a way that would be private. I probably wouldn't publicly say what I would do. Fair enough. David Rubenstein, thank you so much for those careful right. comments. Thank you very much. On Tesla. And of course, David Rubenstein, peer to peer tonight at 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.